Good morning, everyone. It's been a fun weekend. Celebrating the ceremony yesterday with Chris and Emma, and it was fun to look out there and basically see our church family from Sunday with a few guests, and uh, we were all celebrating the uh, relationship there, and it was a real treat. Um, this last week, I was with my family in Norman, Oklahoma, enemy territory. Uh, we were there because my son, Graham, was at a team camp with his high school basketball team. And while we were there, I had a very interesting conversation with his basketball coach. He was talking about some of the challenges in coaching players in today's culture. And he said, what we have now is what he calls a, a highlight culture, a highlight generation. That particular conversation was taking place on uh, game four of the NBA Finals. And he said, for example, most of the players won't watch this game, at least not from start to finish. Instead, what they'll do is they'll just watch the highlights after the game's over. And then they'll go out the next day and try to create their own highlight reel. <laughs> By only watching the highlights, they miss out on the mistakes, the, the struggles, the grind of the game. They miss out on teamwork, what one player does to help another player succeed. Instead, this highlight generation is just trying to make a name for themselves. Their whole identity is built upon their individual performance. He says it's hard to coach teams these days. I thought about what he had to say, and I thought, you know, this really goes well beyond the game of basketball. After all, we live in a culture of highlights at every generation. I mean, look at social media. It's filled with flawless pictures of beautiful people living perfect lives. It's only the highlights. We don't see the daily grind. But this morning, I want us to take it another step further. And I want us to consider the possibility that this same mindset has potentially invaded our spiritual lives as well. I mean, after all, we love to rally around an exciting cause. We like the idea of making an impact in our community or making a difference in the world, but we're not so keen on the daily grind of discipleship or the sacrifices necessary for community or the hard work of reconciliation. Yes, redemption is most certainly a highlight of our Christian faith, but typically it's not an easy road to get to that place. You see, this morning, Jesus is going to ask a question that I think gets to the heart of this issue. It speaks to the motivation behind our pursuits, the desire behind our commitments. It's a question that highlights a life of discipleship, uh, uh, what it means to know and follow Christ. Or as Eugene Peterson would say, a long obedience in the same direction. I believe it's an important question for our culture of highlights because it looks at what we love as the motivation of how we live. Jesus will ask, what do you want? And we're going to consider what our answer might be. And so before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we enter into your word, May we recognize your presence. 
your spirit that brings life to these words, that spoke life through these words. And would you speak into our hearts? Would you help us see what you intend as you spoke these words to your disciples? As you asked the question of them, may we consider the question for our own lives. And may we honestly answer. May we answer from our heart as we consider what it is that you were asking. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And as you do that, let me give you a little context for what we're going to be looking at together this morning. Um, John begins his gospel uh, with no hesitation in identifying the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We're all familiar with those beginning words when he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on to say, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. So just as the spoken Word reveals what is hidden in our hearts, so too the life of Christ revealed the very nature of God. The Word became flesh. John is saying that when you see Jesus, you see God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. So he wastes no time in identifying who Jesus is, and then he goes on to point some attention towards John the Baptist, who also wastes no time in describing the person and work of Christ. And so look at that with me, beginning in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him. This is John the Baptist. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, when the Israelites would have heard the term lamb, they would immediately think sacrifice. So John the Baptist is looking at Jesus and using that term to describe who he is. Behold, the Lamb of God. He's identifying Jesus as that atoning sacrifice necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Which is why he goes on to explain that Jesus pre-existed his human birth. Let me explain. So Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist, Mary the mother of, jo- of Jesus, and they were cousins, Elizabeth and Mary. The Bible tells us that when Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, Elizabeth is six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And so from that we know that John the Baptist was born first. Chronologically, he's older than Jesus was. And yet, in verse 30, John says Jesus existed before him. John was born first, and Jesus existed before John. See, John the Baptist is simply affirming what John the Apostle has written in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Jesus is God incarnate. The very holiness of God put on display in the flesh. He who eternally existed took on flesh to reveal 
God's heart for the world. A heart that made itself evident on the cross when he became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So so that's the context, that's the background from which this question will now be asked. So if you would, begin reading with me in verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked up upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? You see, in verse 34, John says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, as you might expect, John's preaching has stirred quite an interest in the coming Messiah. So, on this particular day, as Jesus is walking forward, John introduces him by saying, Behold, this is him, the Lamb of God. And these two disciples who we come to know as Andrew and John, the writer of the Gospel of John most likely, uh, they form an interest in him and they begin to follow him. Notice they don't say anything, at least not initially. They just simply want to make a decision about who Jesus is based on what they observe. And Jesus notices their interest, so he turns and asks the question, what do you seek? It's important to understand that that word seek has the idea of desire. So Jesus is not just asking, hey, what are you guys looking for? No, what Jesus is asking is, what do you want? What do you hope to find? What does your heart desire? That's what he's asking. Now look at how they respond in the second half of verse 38. And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? Well, this is an interesting dialogue, isn't it? Jesus asked an interesting question. What do you want? What do you desire? They have an interesting response. Where are you staying? But I want you to notice they call him rabbi. It's important to know that in that culture, a student of a rabbi did not learn in a classroom. Instead, they enrolled, in a sense, in the school of life. They followed their teacher in order to learn from how he lived. They were instructed in those unplanned, teachable moments of daily life. So the disciples, in a sense, were asking permission to learn from Jesus by living life with him. And notice how Jesus responds in verse 39. He said to them, Come, and you will see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. I don't know about you, but this whole dialogue is fascinating to me, just interesting in terms of the the questions asked and the statements made. I think one in which is maybe a little more difficult for us to understand in our culture of, of highlights. Jesus didn't ask these men, what do you believe? He didn't ask them, what do you know? He doesn't give them a quick answer in a classroom or a checklist that they need to follow. He invites them to learn from experience, to know him by following him. 
by living life with him. Because fundamentally, discipleship is not purely an intellectual pursuit. It's not just about knowing the right things. In fact, it's about learning to love the right things. It has more to do with desire than just basic knowledge. That's why Jesus asked, what do you want? What do you desire? Discipleship is about a relationship. It's about knowing and following Christ. A long obedience in the same direction. It's not just a highlight reel. It's the reality of the highs and the lows. What it means to experience God's presence in dark times and what it means to experience God's presence in good times. That's why Jesus said, come and you will see. Now the disciples do decide to follow him. They accept that invitation and there are more interesting things that begin to happen. Look at verse 40. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. Now, we don't know exactly how much time Andrew spent with Jesus, but long enough to draw a pretty clear conclusion, right? He he goes and finds his brother Simon and says very clearly, we have found the Messiah. Now, just a little side note here. Andrew's mentioned two other times, and both times he is bringing someone new to meet Jesus. Because that's what disciples do. They introduce others to Jesus. And Andrew simply affirms what John the Baptist has been teaching them. That Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. He is the Messiah, the one who will rescue them from their sins. Now, how exactly that is accomplished is an understanding that would develop over time for the disciples. But at this point, Andrew believes that Jesus is the answer to God's promise he is the messiah the christ so he brings his brother simon to meet him now having never met simon before jesus introduces himself by changing simon's name it's as if he's saying i know who you are but this is who you will become he says you are simon son of john But you will become Peter, which means rock. This introduces another interesting reality of discipleship. It's the issue of identity. Remember, discipleship is not just about knowing the right things. It's learning to love the right things. Because who we are, we are defined by what we desire. Or to put it another way, you are what you love. And this is the heart of what Jesus is getting to. Take, for example, someone who loves money. If you love money, where do you find your identity? Is it not in all the things that money can provide, all the possessions that you can own? You are defined by your possessions. Your identity is in what you own. 
Your outward possessions define your inward value. Money is where you find security. It's where you find hope. You are defined by what you desire. Which is actually true whether you have money or not. You may be someone who loves the approval of others. So your value is based on what others think. You become what you think everyone expects you to be. You are defined by what you desire. Well, the same is true for discipleship, but instead of becoming what you think everyone expects you to be, you become the person God created you to be. Discipleship is discovering your identity in Christ. So that who you are on the inside now determines how you live on the outside. You are defined by what you desire. And discipleship is learning to desire the right things. It's why Jesus uses terms like hungering and thirsting. Remember in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Those are words of desire, heart longings. And that's what Jesus is speaking to. It's why John Piper says God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You see, when we feel lost, sometimes when we get discouraged or discontent with life, it's often because we're desiring the wrong things. We're longing for things that can't satisfy our heart. That's why C.S. Lewis writes and says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. He says, We are far too easily pleased. You see, discipleship doesn't diminish desire. It ignites desire for the right things. Things that are good and right and true. It leads us to living water. To what it means to know and follow Jesus Christ. It's the only way to become all that He has created us to be. And in its depth, that is what our heart desires. You see, Jesus identifies Peter by the person he would become through a life of discipleship. And we all know, because we know the life of Peter, that that wasn't just a string of highlights. There were ups and there were downs. And that's the reality of discipleship. But Peter kept following Christ. He kept pursuing him in daily life. And as a result, he was transformed by the experience of God's love for him. He became everything God created him to be. And the same is true for you and I. Look at verse 43. The next day, he proposed to go forth into Galilee. And he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him who Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Do you notice how many times this phrase is being repeated? Jesus said, Come. 
and you will see. He's now telling Nathaniel, come, and you will see. He, he speaks to Philip and says, come, follow me. Now, Nathaniel's initially confused about this whole thing because he's very aware of the promise of the Messiah. And he can't quite get his head around how something so incredible can come from a place so in insignificant. <laughs> Nazareth is like Plainview. Really nothing special, right? <laughs> and he's saying, how in the world is that going to happen? It just doesn't add up. And so look at how he continues in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, and I saw you there. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Once again, God speaks to Nathanael's heart before ever giving his name. He says, behold, an Israelite who is not defined by deceit, now, we'll see that there's a connection here between his forefather, Jacob, the deceiver. Because this will come into play with what Jesus later describes. He's saying that Nathaniel is a man of integrity. He's describing him based on his character. He's an honest man. And Nathaniel asks, how do you know me? You see, Jesus didn't know who he was by name. He knew his heart. And Jesus goes on to explain that he knows that because of a supernatural knowledge. Even though Nathaniel has not spent any time with Jesus, Jesus seems to indicate that he has been present with Nathaniel. He talks about how he saw him under the fig tree. Now, it's my belief that Nathaniel wasn't under the fig tree just resting he was doing something i believe he was reading the scripture and more specifically i believe he was reading about the promises of the messiah the son of god the one who would come i believe that's true because he was the disciple of john the baptist who was proclaiming this truth he was one of those disciples that they were discussing this truth it's as if jesus is saying i know who you are nathaniel and I also know what you are looking for. You see, why didn't Nathaniel say, hey, you saw me under the fig tree? That's interesting. I didn't see you. Where were you? It's not what he says. What does he say? You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. See, Nathaniel understands that Jesus perceives things about his heart that no one else would have known. Nathaniel wasn't just resting. I believe he was searching. Whether he was reading, whether he was praying, whether he was thinking, he was looking for the Messiah. And Jesus knew what was on his heart. And he's basically telling Nathaniel, I'm what you're looking for. 
part of the reason we know that the case is that he goes on to describe this vision of heaven opening up and angels ascending and descending. Now we look at that and we think, well, that's kind of strange. But in reality, for the Israelite who hears this description, they immediately think, oh, that's Jacob's dream. Jacob the deceiver. Now, we probably don't remember that as clearly, so let me read it to you. You don't need to turn there. It's in Genesis chapter 28. So listen closely to the dream that Jacob had. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place, and he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on earth with its top reaching up to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Does this sound familiar? And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. In the land in which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth and shall spread out to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south. And you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He's just reaffirming to Jacob the promise made to Abraham. And then in verse 15, Jacob says, behold, or God is saying, behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. You see, the whole point of that dream that Jacob had is in verse 16, where he says, Now I know the Lord is in this place. He is with me. And Jesus, referring to that dream, is telling Nathaniel, I am the Lord, and I am with you. My presence has always been with you. You see, he's telling Nathaniel, I am your heart's desire. You see, we were created to flourish in a relationship with our Creator. But sin has defiled that relationship. And as a result, we seek desperately to fill that desire with other things. Things like C.S. Lewis referred to. Things like drink and sex and ambition. These things are cheap imitations to what our heart was ultimately created for. And Jesus came to redeem what sin defiled. He alone can satisfy what our heart longs for most. Our hearts are searching, just like Nathaniel's was. And Jesus is what we are all looking for. I think the question he asks is important to all of us, whether you are a Christian or not. What do you want? What does your heart desire? What are you hoping for? You are defined by what you desire. I want you to think about it in these terms. The Bible says that God has set eternity into our hearts. Part of what that means is that our heart 
will ultimately only be satisfied by that which has eternal value. Anything that is temporary, anything reserved for this world alone, simply will not satisfy our heart. Whether that's money or ambition or sex or whatever those things might be, anything that's reserved for this world alone simply will not satisfy our heart. And when any of those things become our life's pursuit, we will die longing for something more. That's the reality. Because God has set eternity in our hearts. You see, the flesh longs for the temporary, the easy, the quick. The heart longs for the eternal. And only the eternal will satisfy what our heart longs for most. We were made for so much more than anything this world has to offer. Discipleship, that daily pursuit of knowing and following Christ, orients our heart towards soul-satisfying desires, things that are good, things that are right, things that are true. It, It leads us towards living water. That soul-satisfying relationship with Jesus Christ that every one of us was ultimately created for. Discipleship teaches us how to love the right things in the right way. Things that are eternal. Things that have kingdom value. So here's what I want to encourage you to do this week. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Very familiar passage as Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus' whole purpose in this sermon was to orient the listener to kingdom values, things of eternity that satisfy our heart. And he's helping us understand what that looks like. So my encouragement to you this week is to spend time in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And do a heart check. Measure your heart against what he's describing as kingdom values. For example, he starts in verse 3 and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? We know what it means to be poor materially, right? We lack certain resources that others might have. Well, being poor in spirit is much the same. We lack the spiritual resources that only God can provide. We recognize our dependence upon Him in whom we receive the riches of grace which have been lavished upon us. So someone who is poor in spirit depends on God and finds that He is faithful. So the question is, is that how you live your life? Is it self-sufficient or God-dependent? Where's your heart? Look at the next one. It said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So is he talking about people who are sad and depressed all the time? Is that what that means? There's a kingdom value here. I think this is, the, the pe- it describes people whose heart breaks when they see the reality of sin's destruction. When they look at these stories of racial divide, they see these suicide bombers. They look at all this political hatred and they weep because it breaks their heart to see people so 
lost in the realities of sin. And they're comforted because they know one day God will make it all right. And until that day, they seek to be used by God to give hope to the world. And their heart breaks for the world. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These are heart descriptions. And so do a heart check. Look through each of these carefully. Talk about them with each other. Pull out a good commentary. Figure out what some of this means and decide if it's describing how you're living life. Or do you need to be recalibrated towards something different so that your heart is set on the eternal, things that last forever and not things that only last for earth? Because kingdom people, what Jesus is saying here is I have come because the kingdom begins with me. And you live these kingdom realities in part and one day in full. So the question is, are we living out those realities today? So take some time, Matthew chapter 5, and decide if it describes where your heart is. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for each of us this week as we look at the Beatitudes, that Sermon on the Mount, when you intended to describe to your listeners what it means to live with a kingdom perspective, a heart set on the eternal, things that really satisfy our soul in ways that nothing in this world could ever compare. So, Father, help us to be honest, like Nathaniel. Help us to be men and women of integrity that will be willing to look at your word, let it examine our heart, reveal those places where we fall short, and accept the grace to be reoriented to something better. And turn our hearts towards you. Help us be fulfilled in that soul-satisfying relationship that we were created for. Help us to know and experience the love of God by pursuing you daily and helping us become everything you created us to be through that relationship of love that we have with you. What a privilege. Like you've told Nathaniel, you've never not been with us. You've always been present. And we can take great comfort in that truth. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is with us who is for us, and who loves us. Amen. Have a great day.